Good morning, church. My name is Styles, and I have a couple pieces of bad news to share with you. One, Moises is not here. Two, you don't have enough time to get to the other camp he's, he's preaching at. The good news, he'll be back next week. What, what a... <laughs> What a sweet uh, presence of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you, Ricky and the worship team for leading us into his presence. Uh, I want to give you a a pre-sermon that kind of hit my heart this week um, as I was thinking about last Sunday, and this is our last Sunday uh, on our series on the Holy Spirit. Thinking about last Sunday and and Pastor Moises' message, and I was reflecting as he was sharing his own personal testimony of when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about about my own. And I was 16 years old uh, on a missions trip in Jamaica. It was about 120 degrees that day. We had uh, hiked up at least a mile to a hilltop church uh, to minister in that service. And the Holy Spirit fell. And we were all preaching or or worshiping in the aisles or at our seats or on the stage. And I I just remember it's some of those moments with the Holy Spirit are some of the most vivid, vivid memories I have. And this one in particular, my brother Wes was praying and he was laying on the ground on his back and I just remember reaching down, uh, just touching his heart, and the Holy Spirit hit me. And at that moment, I was baptized with the Spirit and with fire, as Jesus said. Uh, and it was an, an amazing experience. But that wasn't the only time. Uh, so when I was in college, uh, I played basketball a couple years at a small Bible college. Don't think of me more than you should. Didn't really play. But early seasons when you have two-a-day practices, you know, early morning and then after after your classes in the afternoon. Uh, And to get us into shape, our, our coach was kind of a hard driver. To get us into shape, he would find consequences or punishments for doing the smallest little things, but really it's to get you into shape. Out behind the gym was this hill. We just called it affectionately the hill. And it was a a steep uh, hill that kind of descended to a a beautiful pond that was on the college property. But we would sometimes have to run it uh, facing forward. But then if coach was in a particular mood, we had to turn backwards and run up and down the hill, hands raised, uh, running backwards, which was kind of hard when you're out of energy and you're tripping over yourself. But one practice in particular, and this was at night, um, I, we were running tons of hills. But I was out there one time, you know, you would mess up something and, hey, hit the hill. And so I was running out, nobody else was out there, and I was running backwards, hands up to, toward the hill. And with each step backwards, I felt like I was moving further and further into the presence of God. I I felt like 
maybe Moses as he was going up one step at a time into the mountain of God to visit with the Lord. It felt like that. And by the time I was at the bottom, it was like I was arrested, like I, was, I couldn't move. The Holy Spirit had come upon me in, in, in such a dynamic way. Tears just streaming down my eyes. And so when I eventually make it back into the gym, it was clear to my teammates that something had happened. And so one of my uh, teammates, this 6'9 giant of a man, stops. What happened out there? What's going on? I'm just crying. The Holy Spirit hit me, Jason. Well, give it to me. <laughs> so I, I just put my hands on either side of his cheek, and he, he just collapsed uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that was another time. And, and then another time in college, a couple of years later, uh, the, the Lord was distant from me or I was distant from the Lord for it felt like a few weeks. And it reminds me of, there's a story in um, uh, the kingdom period uh, of the Bible where the Bible says that the Lord distanced him, himself or withdrew himself from that person. I think it was a king and I'm, apologies, I don't remember his name but withdrew himself for a time to see what he would do. Meaning, would you still be bound to the law to obey if you don't feel that emotional connection with the Lord? And I, that's what it felt like. And I, I couldn't get out of it. You know, we would say it was a rut. I just couldn't get out of it. And so there was a uh, uh, park near the college campus, and I, I drove over there. It was probably near midnight. I was just spinning. And, and when I walked out, uh, nobody was there. Uh, when I walked out on the grounds of the park, uh, I just started praying and just collapsed on the ground, kind of like eating dirt, uh, just praying before the Lord there. And it was such a sweet moment. But then you fast forward into my um, mid-20s, uh, when like most mid-20 men, we have no idea what we're doing in life, and we're trying to find our purpose. The Lord had not gifted me yet with my beautiful wife to tell me what my purpose was. Uh, but it was, it, it was, looking back, it was one of the sweetest times I had with the Lord. It, it, it was an apartment um, where it felt like for weeks, you, I guess you could call it a season, there was three or four nights a week when I'm just sitting at night after the day watching basketball and it's the, the Holy Spirit just hit me and I'm floored and I cannot get off of the floor for at least an hour or more depending on the night just praying in the Spirit and so I say all that because I want to encourage those of you who have not been baptized with the Spirit yet but are seeking that a couple things. It is not a requirement scripturally for someone to lay hands on you to receive the baptism. That is a possibility. We see it, Peter and John laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But that's not a must. The, the uh, folks in the upper room, they weren't all laying hands on each other. The Holy Spirit came upon them. For me, nobody laid hands on me. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I, if I could kind of take a poll of the room, you'd see a mixture, some that were received the Holy Spirit by a, a minister laying hands on them or somebody laying hands on them, and some the Holy Spirit just came upon you. 
But it also reminded me that those times, which is, have given me so much strength through the years, I was alone, except for that first time in Jamaica. And it reminded me when God called to Moses, come up here. You, by yourself, come up here. Jesus withdrew to be alone to pray many times. So let's make sure that church is not the only time when you're trying to connect with the Lord in an intimate way. And that can be challenging sometimes when you're married, uh, especially if it's a great marriage. You always want to be around your spouse. But you can take a walk around your neighborhood or, or various things like that. I remember when my wife and I moved into the neighborhood prior to this one, uh, the Spirit drove me out of the house, and I was walking around just praying loudly in the Spirit. And it wasn't for a couple years later, we were at friends down the street that had moved in. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's recounting this story of shortly after they moved into the neighborhood, this crazy person was walking around the neighborhood speaking gibberish. And I'm thinking, oh, that was me. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wanted to encourage you with that. Don't think that it has to be in a church or don't think that a minister has to lay hands on you. Continue seeking the Holy Spirit. And so what we're talking about this morning is a, what a spirit-filled life looks like. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This was the confession of John the Baptist when Jewish spies were sent by the Pharisees to ask if he were the Christ. John responded saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to loose, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In this statement, John is making a clear distinction between his baptism, a baptism of repentance and water, and the baptism of Jesus with the Spirit and fire. This distinction is then further confirmed by the fact that Jesus never baptized anyone in water during his, his uh, earthly ministry. Jesus then reiterates in his own words, to the disciples just before his ascension, he says, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we have John claiming that Jesus will baptize with a baptism different than his own, then Jesus later repeats the claim to his disciples after his resurrection, but before his ascension. And then, quite remarkably, Jesus never baptizes anyone before he ascends to heaven. So what are we to make of it? There's no other conclusion to draw than to affirm that the events recorded in Acts chapter 2, 2 through 4, is the baptism of Jesus. In the same way, that water baptism is the baptism of John. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not trying to claim a new doctrine or change an existing doctrine. I'm just, I'm drawing out the origin and the nexus of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So to state it plainly, the baptism of Jesus is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And to say the inverse, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the baptism of Jesus. Jesus spoke of this tectonic shift of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in John 14. Moises talked about this last week some. He says, when he was comforting his disciples with the promise of his Father, sending another helper, the Spirit of truth, promising not to leave them, us, as orphans, Jesus said, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When saying that the Spirit dwells with you, Jesus uses the Greek word para. It's a preposition meaning alongside of, beside of, or in the presence of. But then Jesus shifts when he says that the Spirit will be in you. Here Jesus intentionally uses a future tense verb, will be, to emphasize that this enduring presence of the Holy Spirit, internal presence, has not yet happened. He then uses another preposition, translated in English as in, but the Greek term clarifies that this means inside, within. At this point, it's important to distinguish between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that persists in all believers and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this indwelling as a deposit or a seal, as being sealed with the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians 4.30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this seal then is given to every believer's heart at the moment they believe, the very instant, salvation. This work is the fulfillment of God's promise recorded in Ezekiel 36. In verse 26 and 27, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone and out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So this seal of the spirit of which, that, this is the seal of the spirit, spirit, excuse me, of which our full reward is received in the next life. The baptism or filling with the spirit finds its fulfillment, however, on the day of Pentecost to a prophecy found in Joel chapter two. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. In fact, Peter quoted this sermon, this uh, quote, this passage on Pentecost. He did so to clarify that these men who were now speaking with other tongues at 9 a.m. in the morning were not drunk because that was the suspicion of the people that were watching this unfold. Instead, Peter explained to the people that they were now witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecy from the book of Joel. 
So this event, this outpouring of the Spirit, launched the church into the Spirit-empowered life. That Spirit-empowered life or Spirit-filled life is characterized by a life of submission, of power, and of transformation. Not only do we see the Spirit-filled life on display in the formative stages of the church in the book of Acts, but we also see it in the, in the life of Jesus, which is a unique scenario. Luke 1.15 says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. So then Jesus initiates his public ministry with two acts of submission. He submitted to John's baptism of repentance in water, not that he needed to repent because he was sinless, but he submitted in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then immediately after his baptism, Mark 1.12 says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. What's truly fascinating here, as we're talking about how a spirit-filled life is characterized by submission, is that the Greek verb translated in this verse, verse as drove out literally means to lead one away somewhere with a force which he cannot resist. So just pause there for a moment. The Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with other tongues. Cannot resist. I, I, this is vivid to me. I'm held down on the floor of my apartment. I can't resist that. Jesus is providing us with the perfect example of what submitting to the Holy Spirit looks like. It's a commitment which actually extends beyond submission and into servitude of compulsory service to the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. In Acts 8, we read of the Spirit leading Philip to share the gospel with an Ethiopian official from uh, Queen Candace's court. And subsequently, he baptized him in water. But in verse 39, we read that when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord literally carried Philip away to another place. Again, the Greek verb translated as carried actually means to seize or carry off by force. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, he's meeting with the Ephesian elders when he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That word meaning to be bound or under legal obligation. I think we're getting it, that this is compulsory. This is servitude. That's what submission to the Spirit looks like. But it's the rest of Paul's statement that shows the severity of this submission to the Holy Spirit, if you're truly going to walk that life. Paul continues after saying that he's constrained by the Spirit, saying, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, Paul continues as if he's realizing the cost of his commitment. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So a spirit-filled life is a life marked by submission to the Spirit's will and the Spirit's work, but it's also characterized by power. Specifically, the power of God 
working through us. In Luke 4, we see Jesus emerging from his 40 days of trial and temptation uh, in the wilderness. And it says, in the power of the Spirit. This is the same power that Jesus promises just before his ascension in Luke 24, 29, he says, And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And obviously, we see this power on display throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. But then look, in Acts chapter 3, the first event recorded after that sermon on Pentecost is Peter and John walking to the temple, and they encounter a lame beggar who is begging. To which Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I give to you, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This was the first miracle after Jesus had ascended to heaven. So this miracle set the trajectory of the ministry of a spirit-filled church. The Holy Spirit was affirming the words Jesus spoke to his disciples when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. It's at this moment when Jesus proceeds to tell them that he will not leave them as orphans, but will send the helper, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit's power was not only used to perform marvelous miracles through men, but it served as a stamp of approval on the ministry of God's faithful witnesses. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to conflict and possibly accusations against the validity of his own ministry that was brought forward by some uh, false teachers that were brought in. In chapter 2, he says, Paul writing, I was with you in weakness, to the Corinthian church, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But then a couple chapters later, he's now ratcheting up his rhetoric against these these divisive interlopers. Paul writes, some, these folks, are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So the spirit-filled life is marked by submission. It's marked by power, but not for the sake of power itself, but power to support or affirm the gospel witness. Lastly, and perhaps most overt and observable, is that the spirit-filled life is one that's characterized by transformation. And that's where I want to spend the majority of our time remaining. The book of Titus is one of three pastoral epistles. These these epistles were a departure from the rest of Paul's letters because they were written to pastors, Timothy and Titus, uh, rather than his other letters written to a body of believers or a community of believers. Paul was writing specifically about the administration of the church and the character of, of the church. This is how you do church, and this is how the church, not a building, but a body of believers is supposed to behave, is supposed to look like, is supposed to interact with the world. Titus, in particular, shows us the dichotomy between the character of the church and the character of the world. 
Paul begins in chapter one by outlining the qualifications for elders. That, that's the term used for pastors. They must be above reproach, husband of one wife, have believing children, not insubordinate, not debaucherous, not arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And if you're like me, when I was reading through this, preparing for this sermon, I'm thinking of Moises every step of the way. And he's checking the box, Eddie. Moises' his brother, he's checking those boxes. I think he fits. That's good news for us. We don't have to take him to some supreme council. But Paul then juxtaposes that with the unqualified, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. If that characterizes your church, your pastor, it's time to walk. Okay, these, he says, these empty talkers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Paul now focuses on Titus, specifically exhorting him to teach sound doctrine. He then tells Titus how older men are to act, how older women are to behave, how young women and young men and even bond servants are to act. All right, so here goes the list. I don't want you looking to your neighbor thinking, do they fit this description? Okay, older men are to be dignified self-controlled, sober-minded. Older women are to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Young women are to love their husbands and their children, manage their household, self-controlled, kind, and submissive to their husbands. Younger men are to be self-controlled, showing integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Some of you might be thinking, why is the list for younger women longer than younger men? He knows we can't handle it. <laughs> Paul wraps this up with his reasoning. Why, he's, why am I telling you all this? This is why. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, key phrase there, upright and godly lives in this present age. Finally, in this section of Titus, Paul charges Titus to remind the church to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is the character of the church. Once again, Paul describes what the contrary looks like. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So have you, have you been saved too long to remember those days, church? That was a life of emptiness, of despondency, of hopelessness and violence. It's like our hearts were 
completely twisted like it was in a vice, squeezing the lifeblood out of us. But, Paul writes, and do we remember that moment when you felt that you weren't good enough and that you weren't worthy and that you would never be good enough and that God may never see you and that even if he did see you, you would not capture his attention. But, Paul said, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And here's the transformation, church. Don't miss it. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So let's narrow our focus now as we get closer to our close here on this transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. At salvation, the very moment that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, God does two things at that moment. He justifies us and he sanctifies us. As the eternal judge, God has rendered his verdict on us and found us justified by the blood of Jesus, absolved of all of our sin and shame. Guys, there's at least one person that's still wearing that shame. God absolved you of all your sin, all your shame. Don't carry that around. At the same moment, God also sanctifies us, which means to make holy. If we look back at the description Paul used of this transformative work, he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This word for regeneration suggests a singular point in time event and means new birth, which reminds us of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So at salvation, we are born again, regenerated. We're a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. But then Paul also reminds us, he mentions the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So whereas regeneration speaks of a singular event, renewal, or perhaps more accurately translated, renewing is a recurring work wherein the Holy Spirit is perpetually transforming the believer into the image of Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Then Paul, in Romans 12, 2, charges us not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing we may discern the, what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. 
So here's the good news for us, to take the pressure off. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to perform this transformative work. We cannot transform ourselves. We did not regenerate ourselves, and we cannot renew ourselves. This transformation of the believer is a supernatural phenomenon that can only be achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, you can look in Romans 7. Because in Romans 7, going through a little bit of chapter 8, Paul walks us through the reality of this struggle from being this new creation to being remade, renewed into the image of Christ. So Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do, what I do, not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so now he continues in chapter 8 by emphasizing the Holy Spirit's work that we just talked about in the renewal or the transformation of the believer. In verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But, the, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit of life, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
So what is our part in this transformation? If it's the Holy Spirit's work within us, perpetually renewing us, moving us closer and closer to the image of Christ, then are we completely off the hook? Are we to just relax, to sit back in some transcendent meditative trance, allowing the Spirit to just renew us? Are we to continue living in the same way we did before our regeneration, our salvation? Of course not. We are implored in Galatians 5 to walk by the Spirit. And by doing so, Galatians 5, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, Paul lists the works of the flesh. He says they're evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And, and don't dismiss this work of the flesh, sorcery, as some stumbling block from ancient times. It's most, much closer to us than you might think. Anyone walking around in our current culture today trying to manifest things in their life are on the very threshold of sorcery. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the, these things, these like, uh, things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step or walk by the Spirit. How are we then to walk by the Spirit? The answer is simple, but the execution, as with so many things in life, depends on our response. Walking by the Spirit requires two things, proximity and commitment. James 4, 7 through 8 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to, God, to you. And in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him to eat with him and he with me. So the first proximity, how close is your relationship with Jesus today? And let me ask it a different way. Would an outside observer view that relationship that you have with Jesus as one of acquaintances or perhaps as one of convenience? Or would they observe an intimate and inseparable relationship? But closely associated with proximity is our commitment to him. Jesus did not call us to be converts. He called us to be disciples. And from the example of the original disciples and the instruction given from Jesus, we know that discipleship is a commitment that knows no rival. It does not have an off switch. And there is no limit to the commitment that can be exceeded. In Matthew 19, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus explains the reward of this commitment, saying, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold 
and will inherit eternal life. Luke 14, 26, Jesus uses even stronger language saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, in this context, hate is, is used as a comparative, meaning there is no thing or no one that should reach the level of value that Christ has in your life. He does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus finishes by saying, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Our commitment to following Jesus should rise to the same level as the disciples when in John chapter 6, the Bible says many of his disciples left him and followed him no more. To give just a little bit of context, that follows up after feeding the 5,000 when people were just thronging to him, seeing miracles, being fed, becoming fat off the bread and the fish that was being handed out. And Jesus got a little stern with them because the gig was up. And he's turning to all these crowds. You're not following me because you love me. You're following me because I fed your bellies. And then he gets into that kind of aggressive language. You're going to have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. We now know that that's communion he's referring to. But these people are like, whoa, this teaching is far out. And the Bible says that, and uh, oddly enough, in John chapter 6, verse 66, uh, 666, that many of his disciples uh, turned away and followed him no more. Jesus, exasperated now, turns to the 12. What about you? Will you leave now also? Are you going to go? Peter's response should be our response. Lord, to whom shall we go? That's the, that's the question or the response of true commitment. There's no plan B. There's no going back. Peter says, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Our ability to walk by the Spirit corresponds directly with our proximity and commitment to Jesus. Let us be a church that is marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this series where we've walked through the work and the presence and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that promise. That promise was that when Jesus, your son, was to be by your right side in glory, that you would not leave us as orphans, but you promised to send your Holy Spirit as a deposit inside of us, a seal. And that you promised to fill us with your Holy Spirit, so that we could live that Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered life. Holy Spirit, you are the transformer. You renew us. And we submit ourselves to you for that renewing work. We do not have a plan B. We pray that 
you would help us to push in closer and closer and closer into our relationship with Jesus. Let our lives be a reflection of his image more and more and more as we get more and more mature by your power, by your transformative work. And Lord, for the greater body here, for our church, let us corporately be that image of a spirit-filled body of Christ in our community. In Jesus' name, amen.